0: Sure, we have 30 seconds to tell you that drivers who switched to Progressive could save big. But then what? We could romance the legal copy. It never gets the attention it deserves. And some lawyer worked real hard on it. So take it away, lawyer. <clears throat> progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National annual average insurance savings by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive in 2020. Potential savings will vary. Now that was some beautiful legal.
2: Welcome to another edition of the Exxon Radio TV Show. I am Rob McConnell. We're coming to you from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. If you'd like to uh, send us an email, exxon at exxonradiotv.com on all social media sites, exxon Radio TV, To find out about the programming we have available for you 24-7, 365 on the Exxon Broadcast Network, visit xzbn.net. And on the Exxon TV channel, channel 21 on TV. At Simultv.com, ExONation, My first guest of this hour and tonight is Mike Beaver. Now, Mike is an amateur ufologist, a web page administrator, an unpublished author, looking for an agent, by the way, and uh, have been an occasional ET contactee since his first close encounter in October of 1980. Mike is a hypnotherapist. As such, he has uh, worked with one abductee who claimed to be used as a breeder for one of the gray races. And Mike has assisted one client to remove a dark spirit attachment. Joining me now from near Atlanta, Georgia, is Mike Beaver. And Mike, welcome to the X-Zone.
1: Thank you for inviting me to your show. I appreciate you having me on.
2: Uh, Mike, you have one impressive uh, resume, you know, your resume includes as a former uh, technology professional with over 41 years of computer experience, you've worked with over 60 professional IT-related contracts, and I'm just going to name a few, the CIA, FBI, Defense Security Services, uh, DISA, NATO, the Army, and so on and so forth. Wow, that is one heck of a career, now you're a hypnotherapist, am I correct?
1: No, okay, so... I had a hypnotherapy um, practice open for a year when I was in Houston, many years ago. Right. Uh, And I've been an IT professional. I've touched computers for 41 years, Mm -hmm. but I've only been working professionally as an IT professional for a little over 25 years. Uh, But I've been playing with them since the days of the mainframe. And so um, I'm primarily an IT professional. The hypnotherapy work is something I'm actually more talented at than I am as an IT professional. I've had companies get uh, government contracts on my resume only, with no other resume involved. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I still uh, look at myself as more talented as a hypnotherapist. So I'm just very good at it. But uh, I don't. It's been a long time since I've had a client. So I don't. I don't make my living in that way. I make my living. Uh, as an IT profession. But it's not by choice, it just, Necessity. just worked out that way. I, uh,
2: I would imagine that you've seen so many changes in the IT industry since uh, since you've been in
1: it. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, the mainframe days were totally different. You mm-hmm. had ticket tape and a bunch of cards. And yeah. As far as what I've done, I started out doing hardware tech support for a little uh, medical practice management software development company out of Houston. And uh, they had some interesting clients. They had one client that started the MRI business in the city of Houston. So I went around to uh, a bunch of MRI places. But I've done, I worked in the uh, war room in uh, Afghanistan uh, for NATO. That was the highest paying job I ever had. Uh, in front of me, uh, Up on the wall, they had uh, four live drone feeds where they're they're watching people with drones, uh, tracking cars, following them, Um, so-called terrorists. And behind me, you had a Raytheon guy who had 30, 40 different live drone feeds on his board. And through that room, uh, Petraeus got his morning briefing every day. That's one of the jobs I had. Um, But... I worked with um, a um, vendor when I was working at the world's largest training center, kind, which is the army medical department center and school out on Fort Sam Houston in uh, San Antonio. The uh, I worked with a vendor and with me and the vendor alone, we stopped a congressional investigation together. That was one of the more interesting things I've done. Uh, but uh, I've, Done a lot of things over the years. and If we start going down that path of conversation, it will consume your whole show. Okay. Now, Mike, you
2: consider yourself as an ET or alien contactee, not an abductee. Tell us about your first and second close encounter and how the U.S. government actually covered those up.
1: Well, my first close encounter uh, would take easily an hour, if not considerably more time, to tell it in grade two. Mm-hmm. But it occurred on October 3rd, 1980, uh, near the northwest corner of Houston, Texas. I had come home from a party and uh, uh, was contacted, and uh, I could easily consume your whole show if I told that story moment by moment. But um, my second encounter six months later was on April, th- or about April 13th on Cape Canaveral, uh, NASA's Cape Canaveral base. Before the first space shuttle launch, uh, we were—I'll tell you a snippet of that encounter. So it relates because it relates back to the first one. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were going on base about 5 a.m. in the morning, maybe 5:30. It was pitch dark. All the cars are following each other really close, and um, and so I started telling the people I was with people that I'd never met before. I bought a motorcycle, uh, because see, my father owned uh, one of the very first pre-production Corvettes ever built. It was before they started producing the the, uh, fiberglass Corvette, Mm -hmm. and uh, cops would stop and give him tickets all the time when he wasn't even speeding, just so they could see his car. (laughs) So uh, I had the same idea, if I bought this motorcycle, I'd get on base. Well, after my first encounter, I wanted to leave the planet and I changed my mind at the last minute and decided not to go. So I, after that, I thought, well, i made a mistake. I wanted them to, come, them to come back and take me again. So I was like, when, how can I get them to come back? You know, I'm thinking about that and I figured maybe they want to see the first reusable spacecraft. So I figured they might show up on NASA's NASA base before this, you know, it, you know and somehow connect it with the space shuttle launch. So I went and bought the motorcycle to get on the base. And I figured if I parked it on the, uh, on the beach near the launch site, that somebody with tickets to get on base would come over, look at the motorcycle, and invite me with them to get on base. So that's what happened. I bought the motorcycle, parked it on uh, the beach near, uh, I forgot what the name of the beach is right there. But um, I parked it there on the beach. A guy came over, was looking at it. And he asked me how I was going to see the launch. And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, I got tickets on the base to get on base. You want to go with me? I said, sure. And so uh, we went on base and we're driving that morning. And uh, with this, it was a family, a father, his three kids, and a, uh, I guess it was one of his workers with him. And uh, I told them about my first close encounter. So it takes, like I said, it takes about an hour to tell that story. Right. But we were driving really slow and it takes a long time to get from the from the gate to get on the base to the launch site. So I had enough time to tell them the whole story. So I told them every single moment of the whole first encounter. And the second I finished telling them that story, the kid sitting the German kid sitting in the front right seat, the passenger, he laughed at me. He didn't believe my story. So in my mind I said, Oh God, I wish you would show them what I saw. And then as if it were an answer to my prayer, about two or three seconds later, a craft uh, that looked exactly like the one I saw wow. on October 3rd, 1980 was sitting in front of us. So um, so um, we went under this thing. It was quite a ways out in front of the car, and all the cars drove right under this thing because it was right over the the causeway road Mm -hmm. directly over you if we'd gotten out of the car i could have thrown rock up and hit this thing
2: how big was it
1: well let me let me go go ahead and go through the encounter so you'll have an idea uh so we're driving towards this thing and it's kind of to the left of us because we're on a left curving causeway road it's not Mm -hmm. directly in front of the car when we first see it and so uh as we get closer to it, you know, first, first of all, what happened was, as soon as it appeared, the kid they just laughed and he said to the driver, he said, "Well, maybe that's what he saw." And the driver said, "Yeah, maybe that's what he saw." And so they both of the adults acknowledged the presence of the craft, and then immediately after they said those words, it was like they didn't care about it anymore. It's like it's like it no longer exists. All
2: right. We're going to have to have a cliffhanger here. I've got to take my first break. And Exonation. our guest this hour is Mike Beaver. To find out more about Mike, visit his website, www.profoundestates.com. This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell. And we're coming to you from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton on Ontario TV, on XZBN, and on Simul TV. We'll be back on the other side of this break as we continue talking about the strange, the weird, the bizarre, the paranormal, the parapsychology, and much more. Don't go away. So, Nation, Mike Meaver is our special guest this hour. His website is ProfoundStates.com. And before we went to the commercial break, we were talking to Mike about his uh, first encounter, or his second encounter that he had. And he was on his way to the launch of the very first shuttlecraft after having, uh, luckily, contacted somebody who asked him if he would like to join them, because the guy had an extra ticket. Mike had a brand-new motorcycle. He was sitting on the beach, and, you know, it works. So, Mike, go ahead and continue your story, please.
1: Okay, first of all, my site has no www, and it's just profoundstates.com. Second, okay, so we're on NASA base before the first spatial launch. It's uh, pitch black outside. It's 5, 5.30 in the morning. Mm-hmm. I'm in a station wagon. I'm in the back seat. There's two kids to my left and one behind me, and uh, a guy driving that I barely knew. Uh, he had – the tickets were per uh, vehicle, so they weren't per person. So anyway um, – we're, the craft that appeared in reference to my request, um, we are driving towards it. The, the guy who laughed, kid who laughed at me, acknowledged the presence of the craft, and so did the driver. After that, it's like they didn't care anymore. So as soon as the craft appeared, the very first thing I noticed was, besides the fact that it looked the same as the origin, the other craft that mm-hmm. I saw six months earlier, was it was moving it was spinning very slowly at eight, eight equidistant lights on its edge It was like a black hole basically with eight equidistant lights on the edge it was not vibrating like the one before and but it was spinning very slowly and we went as we uh as it appeared after it appeared i looked at the kids uh the two kids the little boy and the little girl sitting to my left and they—it was like somebody shot them with a freeze ray. They were just totally frozen. They didn't—they uh, were looking around at everything up until the craft appeared. Mm-hmm. Once it appeared, it was like something—you uh, know—shot them with a freeze ray. They were totally, absolutely frozen. And the kid in the back seat, in the uh, little air passenger, or the—the the place where you put your luggage behind the back seat a uh, little boy, really small boy, uh, he was frozen too. So the three kids were frozen. The adults were all not frozen, but the, the driver and the passenger in the, in the front seat, uh, they acted like they didn't care about the craft after they acknowledged its presence. So we kept getting closer to it. And as we went under it, I you, know, you remember it was like right above the mm-hmm. road. And it's bigger than the road itself, but not much. So, I, I, the the window on the uh, station wagon is concave or convex. It it's kind of curved outward. Right. So I stuck I stuck the top of my head against the uh, window and looked straight up because uh, there's a part of the window where you can see straight up because it it's curved out beyond the edge of the of the vehicle. So I looked up and I could see the edge of the craft when we were directly under it. And uh, so it was maybe, uh, at the most, probably two uh, times bigger than the width of the road plus the runoff. So it was not terribly small, but it wasn't that big either. So, So,
2: go ahead. I I was going to ask you, uh, why do you think, Did other people seem to see the craft as well, or was it just you who saw the craft? Like, was there any attention being made to this craft right in the middle of a road with everybody going to see uh, the first uh, space launch for the Challenger? None at all. Wow.
1: Nobody stopped. All the cars drove directly under this thing. And I uh, I must assume that what happened to the adults in my car happened to all the other people in the other cars as well. They either got frozen or they got disinterested really quick so I've seen that uh, the disinterest or lack of interest I've seen that in other people too I- I'll tell you about another one in a minute it's similar uh, but anyway we kept driving around the, the causeway road that kept curving mm-hmm. to the left almost coming back to meet itself and I kept looking back at the craft uh, behind us and even the adults didn't turn around and look back they, they just kept uh, like, like they didn't care that they just gone under this thing. They never looked up at it when they were were underneath it, nothing. It's like as soon as they acknowledged its presence, immediately they lost all interest. So anyway, I'm looking at it uh, as we're driving away from it, and it's just saying they're spinning very slowly, and uh, we got all the way to where the trees blocked out its where you couldn't see it anymore. Once you get to a certain point, the trees blocked its view, and so I couldn't see it. It never moved during that whole time other than spinning in a stationary position. So um, anyway, if we have time at the end of the show, which I doubt, but if we do, I'll tell you uh, more about the first encounter. So Omni Magazine was going to print my story. Mm -hmm. Remember Omni? Yeah, sure do. Okay, so um, one of the reporters called me and said for me to uh, that she would call me back. This was back when there was no free long distance. Right. And uh, she said she would call me back later on that night after like 11 o'clock from uh, New York. And so she called me back later that night. We were on the phone uh, with them paying, I guess, reduced long distance for an hour on the phone. And um, they said, or she said, without any question whatsoever, they were going to print the story. And I i was really um, kind of surprised that they did, had no no qualms about printing it. I f- figured they must have found somebody to verify the, the story was true. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but, you know, I don't know why they were going to print it. I mean, they must have had somebody verified. I don't really know. But they said without any doubt they were going to print it for sure. with it, No questions. So... Uh, she said she gave me her work number, said to call back in a couple weeks mm-hmm. to note so I would. she could tell me what issue they were going to publish it in. And so I called her back a couple weeks later. And, uh, her phone number was to not to her work number. She called me from a house, and her phone number was her, her house number so or apartment. So I called her back uh, two weeks later. Her husband picks up the phone. And he said, what's this about? I told him what it was about. And he said, don't you ever call this number again. And I was like, okay. He was very angry. And uh, he gave me her work number. Mm -hmm. and said, call her at work. And so I said, thank you. And I hung up and I called her at work. Her publisher or her uh, editor Picked up the phone, and we had a long conversation. And she said uh, she wasn't sure if they were going to publish it or not. She became hesitant, and uh, she said to uh, call back in a couple of weeks. But one thing she said right off the bat that kind of caught me was the girl no longer worked there. She worked still worked for Omni, but no longer at that facility. So I couldn't get to her, f- at her with her home number because her husband didn't want me calling that. Sure and i couldn't get to her at her work number cuz she no longer worked there so they kind of uh, the government i'm pretty sure the government kind of cut that one off
2: well, well how do you know it was the government you know it could have been many reasons could have been an editorial decision maybe well, there was a better story
1: i will tell you that what she told me was that there were so many ufo stories out there right now that that you know that was the reason okay and there was just too many other ufo stories now that doesn't make any logical sense, but uh, I, I assume it's the government that did it. You know, I I have no proof, but and I'm not going to try to uh, to you know prove that it's the government. But that's what I assume okay. based on the way the husband was acting and the way uh, both the. The fact that, you know, she's no longer working there, right? That was pretty weird.
2: Well, people got transferred, you know. Right? It's not as if yeah, she wasn't she could, working for Omni anymore. She was still working for Omni, but she just wasn't the, in the same department.
1: The lady, the, her editor could have given me the number where she was working mm-hmm. so I could keep up with it, if she wanted me to keep up with it. And, uh, you know, at least I could have called call and said, well, I'm sorry, you're not going to print it. Sure, Have a good day, you know, and she could have been nice about the whole thing. I, it was just the way everybody acted was just too strange. So.
2: Something that you sent us uh, in your uh, in the information was that you have two attached spirits uh, that you believe are demonic.
1: Yeah, I do. I've had them since, uh, since I was 16 or 18. Uh, I started smoking pot when I was 16. Mm-hmm. I stayed high morning, noon, and night for 18 years. And that's how I got them from smoking pot. So, if you ever hear anybody tell you that pot has no downside, I'm here to tell you it does. So, um, if you uh, smoke pot, if you smoke cigarettes, if you drink alcohol a lot, if you do any kind of drugs, legal or illegal, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot, uh, you have attaching spirits. Uh, My belief is that uh, most people have two or more attaching spirits. So... Um, basically I can give you some, uh, very short stories of people who've seen my attachment experience. All right.
2: Why don't we do that after we come back from this news break? Exonation. nation, our guest this hour is Mike Beaver and his website is profoundestates.com. And Mike and I will be back on the other side as we talk about Mike's, uh, demons or attachments. Once again, ProfoundStates.com. This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell. We're coming to you from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. And to all our listeners around the world, those of you who are Christians or Catholics or believe in this time of year being Easter, Happy Easter to one and all. And we'll be back. Don't go away. back, everyone. Mike Beaver is our special guest this hour. His website is profoundstates.com. Mike, before we went to the break, we were talking about the two attachments that you have that uh, you believe to be demonic, and you were going to give us a couple of examples of, you know, people who actually saw your demons.
1: Okay. In Portland, Oregon, I used to go over to this uh, girl's house. She uh, would have what we called out-of-body parties, mm-hmm. and we tried it. We used uh, Robin Monroe's uh hemispheric synchronization to try to get out of our bodies. I never uh, succeeded in that, but I was sitting across um, a little card table from her one day, or one evening, and she said to me, do you know that you have an imp jumping around on the top of your head? And at the moment she said that, it was doing just that. It was moving around the top of my head, which is very unusual for it to do. And so uh, I knew that she could only see it, uh, as a construct, she knew what it was doing at the time because that was ac- her, her statement was accurate. So another uh, similar example, I was in a jail cell in Portland, Oregon also in the Justice Center. I was sitting on the floor of the jail of the of the cell and I was doing a meditation. I was doing bows forward and side to side motion and I was uh, moving the the chi energy through my chakras, as I used to do, and when I finished the meditation, um, the the my cellmate who was sitting on the bottom bunk looked over me at me and said, "You know, you have a demon sticking its tail in your back." And it was a when he said it, it was a question, a statement, and a question. And uh, when the girl mentioned the one on my head, I already already knew about it. Uh, that one before she mentioned that. But when the guy, uh, when my cellmate mentioned the one on my back, I wasn't aware of that one at the time. And so I moved my awareness to my back. I could feel the sharp pain in my back that detachment was causing at that moment. Mm -hmm. And I'd always thought that sharp pain was just normal back pain. But then I kept my awareness in in that point, or at that point in my back, and I, um, I could feel the energetic signature around the pain. And I knew that wasn't, uh, you know, normal back pain is not going to have an energetic signature on the surface of your skin like that. So I tell people, I, I was sitting on a plane one time and I was talking to this lady and I said to her, you know, if you have an attaching spirit on your back that causes your back pain or your back, your back pain, uh, if it's, in, if your back pain is static in a loc- in a particular location, then it's normal back pain. But if the back pain moves around on your back, then it's not. So these different types of pains, the symptoms of an attaching spirit can be similar, like to, with a headache, to a normal headache, but it's different. With, with an attaching spirit headache, it's more localized. You can put your hand on your head, and as your hand mm-hmm. is on your head... The, This pain goes away. You take your hand off, the pain comes back. You put your hand on, it goes away. So your hand is touching, is is blocking uh, the energy from a spirit that's sitting on the surface of your skin, penetrating your body, but for some reason it doesn't penetrate your hand, which I, to this day, don't understand why, but that's just something I've come to understand. But um, my wife and I were living in Portland, Oregon, as you must know, and... uh, we came across this lady who thought she had some healing power and I, we traveled down to Southern Oregon into this lady's uh, property out in the middle of nowhere. And they were living in a double wide and we walked into her, um, double wide and sat down. Her, her, and her husband were sitting there and she points her finger at me and says, you're healed. And I'm like, I look at her like, uh, she just lost her mind. <laughs> and, uh, so I knew she didn't have any powers at that point. But uh, so we hung out for a little while, rode the motorcycles, did this and that. And then we left and went back home because we knew we weren't going to get any success with removing my attachments from them. So but uh, after we got back to Portland, Oregon, where we lived at the time, uh, you know, two, three, six weeks later, she calls me and says she talked to her psychic friend and she said, her psychic told her that I got my attachments from smoking. And she said, I never saw you smoke. Do you smoke? And I said, she didn't. Her psychic friend never told her that it was pot. So she just let, let it trail off at smoking. And so I told her, yeah, I don't. I, I used to smoke pot. I was hooked on it for 18 years and I broke that habit. And I no longer smoke, but I did for 18 years. So yeah, I used to smoke but not anymore. So that's how I found out that I got the attaching spirits from smoking pot. Basically, uh, these different substances the substances that you imbibe break down the auric barrier around the body, make holes in it, and allow the attaching spirits to get in. So, um, But I worked at Wilford Hall, the Air Force's largest medical facility, and there was a guy there that was even more technical than me, far more technical than me, ran his own team. His father, to this day, if he's still alive, is an exorcist, and he used to help, help his father hold people down when his father was giving them exorcisms as a kid, and when he was a kid. And he, we went to lunch one day, and I shook his hand to, to greet him uh, before we ate, and he said, we were talking about various esoteric things while we were eating, mm-hmm. and he said that the moment he shook my hand, he knew I had attaching touching spirit, wow. he didn't say it in exactly those words, but... He did um, say that. So that's some uh, of the evidence. Sure. Besides, now, um,
2: now, speaking about possession, your wife became possessed, and as a result, you almost spent two years in prison for confining her to a space to keep her safe. Tell us about that experience.
1: Well, okay, so she... Um, I was sitting at... In a rocker recliner like the one I'm sitting in now,
2: mm-hmm.
1: in front of my computer in the living room, because we only had one bedroom at the time. And uh, she, the first thing I noticed was her, um, she was drinking in a different way than she normally drinks. She likes wine. And uh, so she would take a drink of the wine in a bit. she has this big thermal mug that she uses. And then she would sit it down, and she would keep it down, sitting down, but she wouldn't release the mug. And it would be sitting down for like one or two seconds. And then she would take another drink, and she would sit it down and without releasing the mug with her hand, and she would take another drink. And she kept doing this over and over. I'd never seen her do that prior to or after that event. So that was the first symptom. And then I looked at her eyes, and her eyes turned black, the whole Everything, totally black, all the way across. And then they turned red, completely red. Um, and then her after that, her eyes rolled up into the top of her head. Mm-hmm. And then it would repeat, black, red, white. And um, that kept happening over and over. And then at some point, she stood up and turned to her right and started to move. Uh, she tried to take a step, and she she uh, never never made that step. She was like somebody shot her with a freeze ray, freeze ray like the kids in that encounter I told you about. Mm-hmm. She was totally frozen. And I'm sitting there uh, wanting to focus on what I'm doing. TV's on in the background. And I'm staring at her, waiting for her to move. And I leave, leave her standing there for like, a long time. It could have been 5 minutes, 10 minutes, it could have been 30 minutes for all I know. It was a very long time. I just left her standing there waiting and waiting and waiting for her to move and she never moved a muscle. She was totally frozen. Finally, at some point, I got up and without really thinking about it, I walked over, grabbed her by the wrist, let her into the bedroom, threw her on the bed and held her by her wrist standing beside the bed. And she... She came to, but she was freaking out. She she thought I was trying to kill her. And uh, nothing could be further from the truth. I'm a very well-trained martial artist, uh, Chuck Norris's best friend. And Chuck and Aaron tested me from his brother, tested me for my black belt in 81. So if I wanted to kill somebody, it, I wouldn't be trying. It wouldn't take me more than a quarter of a second. Anyway, um, so... She was thrashing around so much on the bed mm-hmm. that um, that I knew I couldn't control her uh, just standing beside the bed holding her wrist. And so I got up on the bed and I sat on her, her legs facing her, uh, her upper leg, and held her wrist tight enough to keep her from breaking through. And she was thrashing around uh, with all of her muscles. So hard that she created uh, welts up and down her arms, and all I was doing was uh, using enough force to to keep her from hitting me. And at some at certain points, she would calm down, and when she calmed down, I would let her go, and she would try to take my head off. She almost blinded me. She hit me like like right next to my eye, wow. as hard as she could. And so I grabbed her wrist again. And I kept holding on to her until she would calm down, and uh, at some point, her eyes rolled up to the top of her head, uh, like you saw on uh, the TV show Heroes, where the guy would do the paintings, his eyes rolled up in the top of his head, and she fell back, and she stopped breathing
2: all right stand by we're going to take our final break here exonation mike beavers our special guest profoundstates.com, and mike and i will be back as we wrap up this hour here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in hamilton ontario canada my name is rob mcconnell happy easter everyone Welcome back, everyone. Mike Beaver is our guest to this hour. W, uh, no, www. Just his website, profoundstates.com. Mike, uh, before we went to the break, we, you were telling us about the um, the night. Can we say that the, the demons or the entity that was possessing your wife tried to get free? Or how would you describe what was happening?
1: Well, when she was uh, on her 14th birthday, mm-hmm. she... Uh, a neighbor of hers brought over a Ouija board and they played with it. And uh, I kind of figured that's where this all got started. I see. And she, her family kind of went downhill after that. Her, her parents broke up. Her father would see a dancing girl in the basement, which was probably the daughter of the family that had the house before that, before them, who died, drowned in a pond near the house. Um, she could... She had a dream once that that uh, a demon attacked her mom and, uh, and that her in the same night she dreamt, dreamt that her mom killed herself with a rifle. So when she woke up, she tried to destroy her mom's rifle. Her brother stopped her from destroying that rifle and her mother did commit suicide with that rifle. So she cursed the demons that she figured killed her mom. Mm-hmm. And I assume they went into her after that. Uh, and uh, so she probably collected more of them over the years. So, so um, how did
2: it happen that you were arrested and put in jail for two years for? Um, I wasn't for confi- put in jail for
1: two years. I it was I almost was put in jail for two years. Uh, it says you charged- you
2: almost spent two years in a prison for confining right. her to a they space. They
1: charged me with with assault, right. which is a, a felony, which I could have been in jail for two years, and then it they dropped it to, uh, like uh, I forgot the other charge, but it was a okay. class one misdemeanor. Uh, after that, so and then I took six months of anger management, yeah, and they they dropped the charges after that.
2: Is your wife okay?
1: Oh yeah, she's fine. She's uh, excellent. She is. Uh, how do I put this? She's uh, very uh, influenced, I'll put it that way.
2: One of your more recent encounters was in Peru. You were in the jungle drinking ayahuasca. Tell us briefly about that encounter.
1: Well, uh, do you want to know more about the ayahuasca, or do you want to know more about the actual encounter?
2: Well, uh, we've heard many people talk about ayahuasca, so let's hear about the encounter.
1: Well, we were on the back side of the largest building uh, of the facility, mm-hmm. the one where I stayed in, and uh, we were we weren't doing the ayahuasca that night. It was like in between. You don't do it every night, um, and so uh, we were looking up at the stars, and we saw this. Cra- somebody else besides me saw the craft. It was about one quarter of your the size of your fingernail. It was large enough to see, but barely. It was just a gray dot. And uh, one of the people that was with me uh, went inside, got some binoculars, and brought them out. And I looked at it through the binoculars. It was a very um, odd shape, like an amoeba. Uh, There was—you couldn't tell where the craft ended, where the edge of the craft ended, and where the night sky started. But you could see like 30 to 50 lights on it, little bitty white lights that were going off individually uh, all over the crap and they were just going on and off uh, not in relation to each other and so uh, basically the moment I saw it it stayed stationary in that exact position with the stars until it, until I could no longer see it until the, the stars in the sky rotated enough to where they were uh, into the trees and I could no longer see it and so um, it never moved the whole night for like two or three hours from that position. And, and it everybody was, looked at it. And
2: ahead. it was the size of a quarter of your fingernail.
1: Yeah, it was very small. Yeah. But uh, if you looked at it through the binoculars, mm-hmm. you could tell it was something big, way bigger than a star. It it had like thirty to fifty lights on its surface. It had a very black surface, but to the naked eye, it looked gray, very light gray, mm-hmm. slightly lighter than the black night sky, but through through binoculars, it looked almost black as a surface. And you couldn't tell where the edge ended. And uh, the next day, I was talking to uh, one of the owners of the facility, and his wife and kid were sitting there, and he was translating because she didn't speak English. And I would talk to him, and he would translate to her. And she told him, and he told me, that one of the cook's assistants saw a disc craft the same night as as I saw that craft. It was totally different, but it was on the same night. So there was a lot of activity that night. But
2: uh, Yeah, oh, I, one thing I'd like to ask you about, um, as, a, as a hypnotherapist, you had one unique abductee client. Uh, tell us about her. Who was abducting her, and, and how is she so unique among abductees?
1: Well, uh, she's was used as a breeder for the grades. She's the only abductee I've worked with so far. Um, She had, when I knew her, she had 72 encounters, 24 implantations, 24 checkups, 24 removals, for a total of 72 encounters. The checkups, they didn't, they, in between the implantation and removal, Mm -hmm. they had a checkup, and that was not an abductee, uh, abduction. So uh, she had 55 offspring, which she, figured out you know through her subconscious and uh, she learned a lot about them because well one of the, the reason why they took her was because she had a very st- or has a very strong psychic talent she could ask get out of her body before mm-hmm. she was born and did so when she was in the womb she would hover over the bed of her parents and she would when she was strapped down on the table on the crap She would get out of her head, roam around the craft, get in their heads, and make them move a certain way, look at certain things. And she could tell they were uh, uh, telepathically linked with each other, like the board. And uh, she learned all kinds of things about them, like the fact that they're like sharks and have no nerve endings. She would see them uh, in a room checking each other out. Uh, Two of them would be examining the third one. They'd come in threes. And, uh, if you cut them or, or her, or, uh, you know, stab them or something, yeah. they wouldn't feel it because they had no nerve endings. And so they were checking each other out to make sure that there was no damage a lot. And so she learned quite a bit about them because of the fact that she could get out of her body and look around in the craft when she was on it. So that's why, how she was unique.
2: Did she ever find out where they were from and why they, you know, like what their intentions were?
1: Uh, Well, she uh, assumed Mm -hmm. that, or she said that they were abducting us because you know the breeding allows them to continue living. They, uh, I think, they're at the end of their genetic road map, and they, I don't think they can breed anymore without cloning, and so uh, they're breeding us so that they can continue to survive. But this is only one gray race. Mm -hmm. I think. I personally believe there's like many, many, many gray races, just like there are many uh, humans. I had an encounter on Virginia Tech one day playing Frisbee with some uh, humans, and they were not humans. But anybody looking at them would have thought they were humans, because to all purposes and extent, they looked exactly like you and me. But they moved around uh, at the blink of an eye and i didn't see them disappear but I, they came they came to where i was in that field without me watching them walk up and i was looking around the whole time playing frisbee looking for somebody coming my way uh, so they don't run over them and kill them and nobody ever walked up they were just there and then they left with that, and i looked around and they're like nowhere walking off and then they came back and they left again a second time and i'm like that's not none of this was possible The humans there's just no this field was humongous in size. There's no way for a human to walk across the field and to be anywhere close to me without seeing them walk up ahead of time.
2: You know, you, you said yourself that you had been using marijuana for eighteen years. Is it possible that you were high when uh, when this happened?
1: When which happened?
2: Well, you know, that you saw the humans, you didn't see the humans, and you couldn't understand how they did what they did.
1: No, no, no. This was when I was married to my wife. I stopped smoking pot long before I met. Oh, my I see. Wife many years
2: listen we've got a minute left what are your final words for the Nation tonight
1: well I'm looking for an agent uh, whether it's a literary agent or uh, a larger agent Mm -hmm. um I want to thank you for having me on my show don't forget to look at my website at the top right hand corner of my website is an excerpt from an index of my book uh check out the, the excerpt from the book and the index um if anybody uh, is an abductee or a contactee and they want to free him therapist, I don't charge for abduction-related research. And All right, uh, Mike. I
2: want to thank you so much for joining us tonight. And ExoNation, Mike Beaver, has been our guest of this hour. Whoa. Drugs can do awful things to you. There were plenty of examples. If you'd like to find out more about Mike, visit his website, Profound States. Dot com. I'll be back on the other side of this break. And for those of you who are going to be leaving us this hour, I'd just like to remind you to each and every one of you to have a super and safe Easter weekend. And always remember this, Exxon Nation, always keep your eyes to the sky and your heart to the light. From everyone here at the Exxon in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, and all our Exxon members around the world, stay safe and take care of yourself, and we'll see you again on this side of the world of reality and the science of parapsychology.